Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, or as the United States Secret Service called me, the original internet godfather. Now, how did I get that title? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list. I escaped from prison <laughs> and I built and ran the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Group. It was a precursor of today's darknet and darknet markets. It laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels operate today. Those 39 felonies had to do with refining modern financial cybercrime as we now know it. Account takeovers, credit card schemes, phishing attacks, stimulus fraud, synthetic fraud, tax return, identity theft, you name it. I was on the ground floor of developing, refining, implementing, just outright doing it. And yes, yes, that stuff will get one sent to prison, deservedly so. Now look. There's a whole story behind all that that we don't have time for today. Why? Well, because today, right now, it's time for the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, the Megyn Kelly follow-up, crypto, election fraud, relationship advice, and more when we come back. All right, and we are back to the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, episode number 38, the Megyn Kelly follow-up. Crypto, election fraud, relationship advice, and more. And as most people know who have been listening to the show, I have been on a bit of a hiatus recently. And the reason why, it's been a forced hiatus. No, I was not in prison. <laughs> a tree fell on my house. <laughs> That's right. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, where the weather is perpetually hot humid and racist. And not only that, but we get some thunderstorms coming through every now and then. About two weeks ago, we had a set of thunderstorms coming through, had these straight line winds, you know, 70, 80 miles an hour. It blew a 150 foot pine tree down on my home and destroyed my oldest stepson's bedroom, landed on the side of the house where all the cabling comes in. We were out without power for well, we're still without power, but we were in the house for over a week without power until the insurance company realized that, hey, I guess that when a tree falls on a house, it causes some damage. So they put us up in a hotel. I'm in Birmingham right now in a Hyatt place. I actually, I actually packed up all of my studio and I've spent the past few days setting it up in this hotel room. And this, that's the reason you have a different camera shot, a little bit different background, things like that, is simply because this is the best I can do with the state, with the space that was given. So bear with me because we're going to be here, I don't know, maybe up to eight weeks. But at least the show is back on track now. We're putting out some new episodes. This is probably going to be a longer episode because of that hiatus I was on. During that hiatus, so I have appeared on the Megyn Kelly show. I did that before the tree fell on the house. I was going to do the follow-up for that, but of course, a tree fell on the house. So this is this show, and um, before we dive into that, wanted to just discuss a, a few things. Uh, I'm from Eastern Kentucky. As most people who listen to me know, I'm from Hazard, Kentucky, and uh, Hazard has recently been hit with some historic flooding. If you paid attention to any news show or Facebook or anything else, Eastern Kentucky was hit with just devastating floods over the past week. And um, I usually don't sign in or pay attention to Facebook, but I, I'm learning about more and more about Facebook and I'm spending a lot of time on there right now. 
because I've got friends and family and and people who are in Eastern Kentucky. Like I said, I'm in Birmingham, so I'm not experiencing that type of devastation. But like my uncle, for example, him and his wife have COVID right now. They were hit with the flooding. They were actually rescued out of their house as the water level was to their shoulders and necks. And uh, my uncle lost his house, lost all their cars, lost everything they've got. Fortunately, they're safe, but he lost everything he had. Uh, His son, my first cousin, lost every single thing that he had as well. House, cars, everything else. Um, And that is not a unique story right now. For Eastern Kentucky, um, for those who have never been or don't know anything about Eastern Kentucky, we are a we're a very poor people. We were never not dealt the best hands in life, but we're a very poor people. We're a very proud people. We believe in 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 doing, you know, in in helping each other and in playing the hand of cards that we've been dealt. We don't like handouts. We like to do things ourselves. We're a proud people, and we're a close-knit people. You know, we're we're the type of people that we have been looked down upon for most of the United States history. We were called hillbillies, right, rednecks. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is that that term was said and has been said in a very derogatory manner. You know, it's it's been an insult to be called a hillbilly. It's been an insult to be... To, 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 to acknowledge that you're from Eastern Kentucky or from the hills of Appalachia. What was interesting is, like I said, I've just been, I've never really used Facebook before. I, I was in prison when Facebook became popular and I missed out on that whole social media thing. I use LinkedIn. I'm, I'm trying to get more involved in social media, but it's difficult. You know, when you miss that initial, eh, <laughs> it doesn't really make sense to you when you try later on to get involved in it. But one of the things that was interesting to me feeding into this idea that that you know hillbillies have been looked down upon throughout most of the history of the United States. Uh, this on Facebook, a person by the name of Debbie Robinson Fox, who runs a, a group called Appalachian Americans, she posted the origins of the word hillbilly. And I'm going to read that out loud because it's very, I think it's important. It's important to me anyway. So hillbilly, the word originated Scots Irish, Ulster Scots in Northern Ireland. Ulster, who moved into the Appalachian Mountains in the 1700s. Billy or Billy's was the term meaning brother, friend, or comrade. Billy boys was the term used referring to Ulster Protestants who supported William of Orange, a.k.a. Billy, in invading England. They were also known to wear red sashes round their necks, coining the term rednecks. And once the Scots-Irish migrated in droves to the United States, they moved quickly into the mountains and hills of Appalachia. The Billies now were comrades of the hills and the mountains, and therefore became known as hillbillies. That doesn't sound to me like that's a, a people that should be looked down upon. But that tends that tends to have been the way. We hillbillies have been viewed as backward as uneducated, as just um, lesser people. And now this whole area, and I, you know, I, my thing is, is um, I talk a lot about the abuse that, that I've been subjected to in my childhood about me abusing other people, you know, this criminal behavior of mine. And uh, part of the consequences of that 
of the abuse that I had visited upon me and my sister had visited upon her. And my sister, I, I think actually it showed up in her much sooner than it did in me, but she does not associate with anyone from Eastern Kentucky, friends, family members, no one like that. The healthy people, and I'm talking not just the unhealthy people, but also the healthy people that was in her life at that point in time, the people who tried to help her. She doesn't have contact with any of them. Now, when I began this legal career of mine, and it's somewhere between five and seven years because I lose track because of COVID. You know, COVID had that two-year thing where you lose two years of time. So somewhere between five and seven years, I've been doing this consultant speaking thing. But what I tried, because I had people that really cared about me in Eastern Kentucky. I had friends. I had uh, um, teachers. I had I had people that really tried to help me and did good for me. I had family members on my dad's side that tried to really help me. And uh, when I began this legal career, I, I did. I went to Kentucky. And I visited and, and tried to associate. But one of the things that I've, I'm finding that has been denied both me and my sister is associating even with those healthy individuals that tried to help us out tends to bring back the thoughts and that negative stuff that happened that the, the, we kind of relive the abuse. So it's very difficult. And that's uh, one of the things that me and my sister, at least I feel that I've been deprived of through that abuse that happened. Um, because we Eastern Kentuckians, and I, it, it took me a long time to not be embarrassed to be from Eastern Kentucky, but I am damn proud these days, and I have been for a few years, to be known as a Kentuckian, to be from Eastern Kentucky. And um, we Eastern Kentucky people, we're very close-knit. We believe in helping each other. We believe in helping ourselves. You know, not relying on government support or outside help or anything else like that. My uncle, for example, I noticed on Facebook today, this is a man who, uh, you know, when I say close-knit, that's what I mean. We, we believe in being around family, you know, and, and staying together and, and being there for each other. And um, this is a man who, the part of eastern Kentucky, Perry County that he, li that he lives in, it was a little bottom, and he lived there, his son lived there, his daughter uh, one of his daughters, he's got two daughters. She lived a little bit on a hill. And then his other daughter lived about a mile down the road. And uh, they were all together, all together. And they always spent time together and everything. That's typical of Eastern Kentucky people. We like to be around our family. We like to be there for each other, but also there for our community. And uh, we're very proud. We like to help ourselves. And I noticed, and I know it hurt Joe to no end, but... Um, he mentioned today that he had a GoFundMe campaign. And I'm like, holy hell, man. But I know he needs I'm going to try. I don't know how I can help him, but I'm going to try to. Um, I just wanted to mention that. That I, The thing is, is that they, the, you see people in eastern Kentucky who typically don't have anything. They're very poor. And now they've had, in the space of a week, they've had their entire lives and everything that they do have taken away from them. And I just, you know, my listeners out there, if you guys could just take a moment to just consider that. All right. And, and, you know, if you've ever thought less of somebody and my, my view is, is that no one is better than anybody else. 
I don't care what your social status is. I don't care how rich, how poor, how educated, how uneducated you are. The only thing that separates one person from another is the hand of cards they've been dealt in life. That's it. We're all basically the same damn people. And just, just consider that. I mean, I'm not asking you to help or anything else like that, but I am asking you to just, just take a moment and consider uh, people that, uh, that never really have had anything. And now they've lost what little they did have. So moving right along, my, uh, that's not the only thing that's happened. My cousin, Sean, first cousin, he passed away during the time that I've not been able to record. Uh, he was 54. And again, I've talked about my abuse. I've talked about my sister's abuse. But there were five boys on that bottom street in Airport Gardens in Hazard, Kentucky. There was uh, me, my two first cousins, Ronnie and Sean. And then there were at the end of the street, there was Fred and Brian Russell. And all five of us boys grew up in that same type of screwed up environment. And all five of us boys had negative consequences because of that. It, that environment negatively affected us. Um, Fred and Brian, they were both brothers. They lived out at the end of the street. Brian, one of the, I mean, honestly, one of the biggest hearted people that I've ever met. He he goes to prison for stealing. He gets out. Um, Hazard, Kentucky at one point was the capital of the United States for Oxycontin use. So Brian, one, I think it was Thanksgiving, he overdosed on a combination of Oxycontin Cocaine, riding that dragon, those highs and lows. The following Christmas, his brother Fred overdoses on a combination, and Fred was a brilliant guy, but uh, overdosed on a combination of Oxycontin, cocaine, both of them die. That, and, and I attribute a lot of that to that environment. Ronnie, I mean, we know my story. I go to federal prison for fraud. Ronnie goes to federal prison for fraud. Ronnie also becomes addicted to opiates. Uh, Sean avoided prison. But he had some issues. He had some mental problems. Now, he was the oldest one. I'm 52. Sean is 54. My, Ronnie was is 52, same as I, age as I am. Uh, Fred and Brian, they died much earlier, uh, many years ago. Not many years ago, about a decade ago. But uh, a little bit over a decade. But it affected all of us. And I, I talked about, I meant, made mention on Megyn Kelly, and I'll, I'll say it here today. I mean, this idea... You don't have to become a product of your environment. Certainly the environment is there and it, it that environment doesn't have to dictate who you are, even though sometimes, many times it does. But we as people, if you're in a bad environment, you know, whether it be the type of stuff that I grew up in or whatever is happening to you in your environment, you don't have to become a product of that environment. You You can take control of your life lives recognize that you're not that the, your environment doesn't dictate who you are become responsible for yourself and make the choice not to do that lord knows it took me a long time to get there it took me a long time to get to that most people never will and even though and i'll say this too even though i made the decision to do that if i hadn't had help and assistance of people outside you know that type of support network that was willing to help me and help me get past that environment, I, I wouldn't have. So it, it goes into this idea that I've been talking about, you know, there's two reasons that we're here, know who we are. And also we're here to help each other, not hurt each other. 
And I think that that just goes into it. If we see somebody that's uh, that's kind of downtrodden, that's uh, in danger of becoming uh, toxic or unhealthy because of their environment, I think it's up to us to try to help these these people. If I hadn't, I'd be in prison <laughs> again. So uh, I just wanted to mention that. Uh, of course, my cousin, he, he passed away. Uh, he would, Sean, like I said, had some problems. He, uh, Ronnie got out of federal prison, decided he was going to, uh, he wanted to start a bell bondsman company. And uh, because he was a felon, he couldn't get the license under his name. So he asked Sean if he could open it up under his name. And Sean was like, oh, yeah, well, Sean, like I said, he had some issues. Sean likened himself to Dog Dwayne Chapman that bounty hunter that's on TV. So Sean goes out and gets the outfit, gets the guns, gets the, you know, the, the bear mace spray and everything else gets his ass in trouble because I guess he breaks into a house of one of these people who had skipped bond breaks into the house, hog ties him, throws him in the back of the car, delivers him to the County jail with the County, the police at the County jail. They arrest Sean for kidnapping. Turns out they will do that shit. So because of that, the bonds company was short lived. Now, Ronnie, I, I've said this before, you know, Eastern Kentucky is one of these areas that you are not fortunate enough to have a job. Some people may be involved in some scams and hustles and what have you. And Ronnie's doing what he needs to do to make ends meet. I, I don't agree with it. And I don't think it's, I don't know if he's, I, I don't think the dude's doing anything illegal. I think he has in the past, but I don't think right now he is. Um, I just hope he stays clean. I don't know. Uh, it's been a long time since I've actually sat down and broke bread with him. I'm hoping to do that next couple of months. We'll see. But um, yeah, Sean, that from that point became an overthrow truck driver. And from what I understand, he, he really liked that type of work. And uh, he was like, he came back from Atlanta, from a hall from Atlanta. He uh, was living in Aiken, South Carolina with his mom. And like I said, we're a close kid. We like we like to have our family together around everyone. So um, he walks out one day about 2 p.m. to the to the pole barn or whatever they had there. And uh, nobody hears from him. His mom goes out to check on him at 4 o'clock, finds him dead. And, uh, you know, I've talked about how my mom's an abusive parent and she still is today. So Ronnie didn't have the money to have Sean buried. Ronnie was the only one's got, I guess he's the only one's got any money. And um, he didn't have the money to have Sean properly buried. So Ronnie had him cremated. Nothing wrong with that. Cheaper. And, and Ronnie brought his ashes back to Hazard from South Carolina. And they had a service. But uh, my mom heard that Sean was cremated. Sean, uh, my mom is Sean's aunt, heard that he was cremated and starts raising hell, starts trying to say that uh, Ronnie and everybody had, had had Sean murdered and they had burned the body to cover up the evidence. So she's calling the police department. She's calling the coroner's office, everything else raising hell. And uh, I can't help but to think, you know, I don't know what it would be like to lose your sibling. I've got a sister can't imagine how hard that is for Ronnie to have lost his brother. But then to add that type of drama and stress onto it, that's uh, that's my mom. And that's why, that's why I've not spoken to her in several years. Behaviors like that. That's why my sister Denise hasn't talked to her in well over a decade. 
So I just wanted to share that, uh, you know, about the floods, about my cousin, things like that. Hey, here's the thing. This is called the Megyn Kelly follow-up, so let's dive into that. So I was I was fortunate enough to be on the Megyn Kelly show. It turns out the producers over there, they saw me on the Lex Friedman show. They watched the episode. They really liked it, and they said, hey, Megyn, what do you think about this guy? And she's like, shit, yeah. I don't know if she said shit, yeah, but whatever it was, it was like, get him on here. So I got on there, and I got to tell you, I have nothing but a profound amount of respect for Megyn Kelly and that entire crew over there. Um, I've been on this legal side of things, this career of mine, like I said, somewhere between five to seven years. And during that time, I've given a lot of interviews. Megyn Kelly and her show is the first one that actually have done their homework when it comes to talking to me. I mean, she was throwing out stuff that nobody else has ever talked about or mentioned or anything else like that. She really did her homework. Now, Lex Freeman did his homework, too. But Megyn Kelly really I, I went above and beyond what I was expecting. And so I have nothing but profound respect for Miss Kelly. Um, I enjoyed her show. She was outstanding interviewer. Everything else, they treated me with the utmost respect. And it was a lot of fun to do the show. At the same time, you know, I had a lot. I had some people that, why are you doing Megyn Kelly? Well, why not? She's a great journalist. Yes, you may not always agree with everything she talks about, but you know what? Get the hell over it. Somehow we live, we now live in a country that people cannot have a difference of opinion. It's okay to have a difference of opinion. It's okay to listen to someone with a different opinion. You don't have to agree with every single thing that they say. You know, here's the thing. It seems that that we're in this position that you're either right or left, and if you don't believe exactly what I believe, you are the enemy. And that's because a lot of these people are simply parroting what they're hearing in the press. The ideal thing is to, you know, you, you pay attention to both sides of an argument. You take the best parts of both sides, you put them together, and you form your own opinion. Don't become a sheeple. Form your own opinion. Think for yourself. I know that's a so it seems like sometimes that's a difficult concept for people, but think for yourself. Uh, Miss Kelly was was outstanding. I would love to be back on her show again. She uh, um, just a great, great experience that I am uh, profoundly grateful and thankful for. Truthfully, all right. So uh, during this, <laughs> now here's the thing. So I talked about my story, talked about how to stay safe, everything else. At the end of the interview, Megan Kelly asked me a few questions, you know, kind of one-off questions. She asked about the Beanie Babies. So I told her the Beanie Baby story that everyone now who listens to my show, I've mentioned it enough. Everyone should know about the Beanie Baby story. And I'm sure I'll go through it again during this episode. Then she asked me about cryptocurrency. And I said, I, when she asked me, I was like, well, my answer is going to piss off a lot of people. And boy, did it ever. What my answer was, is I said, cryptocurrency is basically a Ponzi scheme that's on the verge of becoming legitimate. That statement made people angry. I added on to it by saying, hey, you know, honestly, the real, the real viable use case for Bitcoin and Monero and stuff like that is to launder money. 
that pissed even more people off. So I had, you know, she she cut these this episode into little shorts as well as the main episode. And on on one of the little shorts, I had cryptocurrency. Boy, they were they were just ooh, they were mad, they were mad, they were mad. So I figured we'd talk about that right now on this episode. So, and there was a user named Silver Kitty that that tried to engage me in a conversation. Thought I wasn't somewhat knowledgeable and ended up deleting some of their comments on the show. But there are a couple of forerunners to today's Bitcoin and, and the crypto markets as we know them today. And those forerunners are eGold and Liberty Reserve. eGold starts in 1996. An oncologist and an attorney end up starting this precursor of today's cryptocurrency. The only thing that was missing that didn't that didn't equate it to being a crypto was a blockchain. But the founder, this oncologist, he when if you read some of his writings, you can actually see that, hey, this guy absolutely is talking about a blockchain, even though the technology itself is not into play at that point. Let me see if I can find this guy's name real quick. E. The E Gold Wiki. Because why not? Oh, yeah. So it was uh, Douglas Jackson was the oncologist and Barry Downey was the attorney. Both of these guys started up E Gold. The only thing missing was the blockchain itself. But the writings of Douglas absolutely was talking about this blockchain. He was everything that, that he was saying was basically the blockchain as it is now in existence. Now, I said, and I mean this because this is what happens. The a technology that allows a user to remain somewhat anonymous or that allows the user to launder money, the first adoptees are criminals, period. And that's no different than e-gold. It's no different than Bitcoin. It's no different than the beepers way back in the day, anything else like that. A technology that allows the user to be somewhat anonymous or to launder money, the first adoptees tend to be criminals. Bitcoin, let's go backtrack. E-gold gets started. What happens to e-gold is you see all of these cyber criminals, fraudsters coming in using e-gold or the, the legitimate e-gold users that aren't criminals, you see fraudsters trying to compromise their accounts and stealing money out of that. Not unlike what we see in the crypto markets at the birth of crypto and even today through the crypto markets with the scams and schemes, rug pulls, everything else that's going on. So that was e-gold. All right. Now, the two owners of e-gold, the two founders, they get indicted for money laundering. They plead guilty. They avoid jail time. They had to do some community service, six months of home confinement, bullshit like that, and a fine. All right. But that was Eagle. The founders of Liberty Reserve, they get indicted too. The last I heard, the main founder is still on the run on the United States most wanted list. So the interesting thing about that is Peter Thiel or Thiel or however you say his name, because I'm from Kentucky, we say things differently. The interesting thing is, is that Peter Thiel has a theory. He thinks that Satoshi Nakamoto was well aware of e-gold. As a matter of fact, there was e-gold at one point has uh, they, all these 
venture capitalists and all these developers and everything else, they have this big bash on a beach, I think in the Caymans at some point. And Thiel hypothesizes that Satoshi Nakamoto was on that beach, that you get a list of those people. One of those people is the real Satoshi. All right. And what he says is, is he says that, that because of what Egold was going through, the real Satoshi Nakamoto understood that for Bitcoin to be successful, that he would have to remain anonymous because the founders of eGold, basically the precursor of today's crypto, they weren't anonymous. They get indicted. The follow-up to that, Liberty Reserve, another precursor to crypto, not anonymous. They get indicted. So if you're going to be successful with this shit, nobody needs to know who you are. And that's typically... That's what that's what file says, and I I I I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. I think that's a very valid argument, and I think that that is probably that that the chances of that being true, pretty darn high. All right. Now, at the same time, the Silver Kitty, you know, a lot of people talk about the blockchain. Uh, Silver Kitty is no different than that. Uh, this, this user made the comment that well, you know, the blockchain dates back to 1982. Well, I had to correct that. The blockchain actually dates back to Sumerian times and probably before that. Yeah, if you read the writings of Nick Szabo, S-Z-A-B-O, he's very adamant about the origins of blockchain. It actually dates back much, much farther than 1982. Uh Nick Sabo, for those who don't know, is, is one of the names that is typically mentioned as potentially being Satoshi Nakamoto. If I had to, if I was given, you know, an ultimatum, pick somebody, I would say him because of, of his understanding of blockchain, because of his writings, um, just the connections that have been made over the years. I know he denies it, but still, if I had to, if I had to really point at one, and say him, Craig Wright? Absolutely not. Absolutely, I think he's an idiot. <laughs> okay, not an idiot, but I think he's a liar. So anyway, I called crypto a Ponzi scheme on the verge of reaching legitimacy, and of course, a lot of people. Well, it's not a Ponzi scheme. It's not a Ponzi scheme. Okay, look, look. The problem is, is that first of all, most cryptos are not decentralized they're not that was part of the argument of why crypto was so was so beneficial why it was so revolutionary is that it was a decentralized type of currency first of all it's not a currency at least bitcoin's not a currency because you can't use something that fluctuates as wildly in value as bitcoin to be a a, a val a verify a valid type of currency you can't do that if one day it's at $17,000, the next day it's at 28, the next day it's at 20, you're not going to be able to use that as a viable type of currency. It needs to be more stable than that to be a real type of currency because people are simply not going to do that. All right. They're not. And we see that now. We see that if you, if you pay, if anyone's really paying attention, it started out where it was talked about a currency, how people can buy things with it. But that that conversation has kind of changed now. Now people talk about buying crypto, especially Ether or BTC Bitcoin as shares. I've got this many shares of this. And they even use the word shares sometimes. And you look at some of the analysis, they're using stock market type of analysis to try to predict 
how these tokens are going to fluctuate or decline in value. They're talking about investing in it, much like they would a stock, not as a currency. So no, it's not a currency, even though it may be called that. That don't make it so. All right, it doesn't. The Ponzi scheme. It seems like anybody that says anything that might be construed as negative regarding cryptocurrency, the cult of crypto comes out and starts hammering them. Warren Buffett knows his shit. Bill Gates knows his shit. And both of them, Warren Buffett's very clear. You know, this is a token. This is a, a, a thing that you buy and you're looking for someone else to buy it. That's how it becomes more valuable. It doesn't really produce anything in and of itself. And no, you can't compare that to the United States dollar, which is backed by the United States government. Well, can we trust the U.S. government? Well, I can trust the U.S. government a hell of a lot more than I can trust the 2% of accounts that control 95% of Bitcoin. Bloomberg just reported on that shit about a month and a half ago. 2% of the overall wallets that hold Bitcoin control 95% of those tokens. That's crazy. That's crazy. That is not decentralized. That's about as centralized as you can get. That's about as centralized as you can get. You get those people controlling those types of markets and they're they're relying on other people to come in. So you buy the token and you rely on other people to come in and buy the token at a higher dollar so that you make money off the token. That seems very Ponzi-esque to me. Then you've got, and here's the thing, blockchain in and of itself, if it's developed properly, very, very secure, except for when it comes maybe a 51% attack, which is highly unlikely in most cases. But blockchain, very secure. But that doesn't mean that the people who are coming in and buying these things are not being defrauded. You take all the the exchanges that have liquidity issues. You take Celsius. You take Vanguard. You take Three Arrows. All these. You take Luna, for example. All these other just major stories that have been out. You've got that that's going on. You've got the rug pulls that are going on. It's very easy for me to create a token for. I don't even have to create it myself. I can pay somebody $200. They'll create me a BSC token or an Ether-based token that I can then start to pump up using a variety of bots on Reddit, on on Twitter, on Telegram, what have you. I can use a variety of bots to try to get people to invest in it, then take the money out of it, make a lot of money that way. It's not rocket science to do that. You've got attackers that are doing that. You've got attackers that are uh, taking over Twitter accounts. And defrauding people like that, diverting from one wallet to another. You've got all these different types of scams and hustles that really is keeping Bitcoin from, or crypto as a whole, from becoming legitimate. Now, I had made the comment, and someone on on, uh, Megyn Kelly, on one of the feedbacks for the comments, they made. I said we had a 16% adoption rate in the United States. This user comes in and says, ah, 16%, I highly doubt it. I don't believe that for an instant. Well, the story, you have to understand what they're saying is adoption. They're saying that 16% of the United States population at some point has used cryptocurrency in some capacity. Not that they continue to hold crypto, just simply that they've used it in some capacity. 16%, that may still be high, but it's much more believable than thinking that there's 16% of the population that are part of the cult of crypto. Okay, so just wanted to feed that out there. I know I'm going to probably piss off some more people on that. Don't really care. 
The point is, is that, you know, if you're getting your investment advice from Reddit, from Telegram, from Discord, from some of these other channels, 4chan or what have you, you are not an investor. You are a gambler. Until we get proper regulation, proper informed, educated regulation, because I got to be honest with you, I don't think there's anybody in Congress, right or left, that understands cryptocurrency or what needs to be done to any extent. But until we get proper informed, educated regulation that protects the legitimate users that are out there, we are not going to see crypto become legitimate. We're not going to see that mass adoption that we need to in order for crypto to become anything more than a risky investment. That's it. It's risky investment. Yes, there's not a lot of money to be made, but as people are now seeing with crypto winter, now that it's it, there's a lot of money to be lost. A lot of money to be lost. So, you know, my, my opinion is, is that uh, for anybody that wants my my view on investing, do your homework, find a token that has some sort of use. For example, Bitcoin, it's the granddaddy of them all. If you're going to invest in one, I'd say invest in that. Ether, you can actually do shit with the Ether coin. You can have smart contracts, everything else going on. So I, I like Ether because it has a use case. Um, Baby Doge, you're using the token to protect or save animals at rescue centers. That's not a use case. That's a bullshit line to help try to get people to invest in a token that's not really worth anything to begin with. Shiba Inu, all this other stuff. It doesn't mean that people aren't making money on it, but it does mean but that there's no real use for those tokens whatsoever. What's The only reason it's making money is because of the hype that's involved, and that hype will die at some point. So you need to understand that if you're going to be an investor, invest in something that has potential to do something. Okay. Sorry, I'm on my high horse there. <laughs> anyway, just wanted to just wanted to talk about that. Um, and and you know when when you've got a professional like a like a Buffett or Bill Gates talking about this, and they say something like that it would probably behoove people to kind of pay attention. You got Jamie Dimon or somebody else that says, hey, you know, really, what's it doing? What does it produce? Nothing, nothing. Until you can find something these things produce or some benefit, nothing. You can't say it's a benefit because the argument was it's all decentralized. No, it's not. It's not. When 2% of the wallets control 98% of the supply, that is anything but decentralized. So um, just bear that in mind. I had another gentleman. Let's. I want to read his comment because I think he was, uh, this is from the Megyn Kelly show. This is, um, first let's, let's I'll, I'll handle it. From Megyn Kelly show, this is Su Susanna Lewis. She says, Brett was such a great interview. He's a fantastic storyteller and it's refreshing to hear him take responsibility for his terrible actions, especially after slogging through the interview with the mobster. A little while ago, I have no idea who the mobster was, but uh, you know, with, with me, I, I'm a firm believer that um, I take it seriously. This this thing of trying to be a better person, I truly do. I um, I did a lot of harm, a lot of bad things in my life, and I'm adamant about trying to uh, be healthy and trying to help people, not hurt people. Um, and I think that if, unless you can accept 
not only accept responsibility, but be able to talk about it, to be able to share experiences and understand the motivations and everything else. I think if you can't do that, you know, what the hell are you doing? Uh, for a mobster, and I've known a lot, of, I knew some of the Goodfellas mobsters, a couple of hitmen as well. You know, for mobsters, um, I'm sure there are some that have accepted responsibility. It sounds like Megyn Kelly had one on there that maybe happened, that maybe was a little too proud of his stories and uh, his history and uh, his badass nature that he didn't, uh, he hadn't really come to terms with uh, with who he was or, or wanted to help people instead of hurt people. Um, maybe he can get there. You know, maybe he can get there. Anyway, this uh, Megyn Kelly, she also asked me about election fraud. And a gentleman comes in uh, as a comment to her show, and he says, Mr. Johnson, you are an intriguing individual. I am 70 years old and a student of history. My BS odometer was out of control during the 2020 election. I always look forward. I wonder, would you consider investigating that election? I would like you to elaborate on, quote, it's possible that the voting could have been compromised. I want free and fair elections going forward. My granddaughter needs a future filled with sunshine. Highest regards. Okay, so Megyn Kelly asked me about election fraud. And what I said was, is I said, it is certainly possible to defraud an election. And there's a couple, there's a couple of techniques that you could use. You could use, absolutely, you could use that idea of registering or getting absentee ballots, forging all those, dropping them in ballot boxes across the way, stuff like that. Would that work? Absolutely, you could do that. Absolutely. When I was a cyber criminal and we were creating new identities, you know, we'd use dead people to create a new identity to defraud people or to get a driver's license and potentially passports after that. One of the stepping stones to that, you'd first get the death certificate, then you get the birth certificate, then you get the uh, social security card, and then you would go to register to vote. You'd fill out so you'd get the voter registration card. Not so that you could vote, but simply as a piece of identity to then be able to go into the state DMV, get the state ID, then the driver's license. Um, you can certainly do that all day, every day. And the security is so low that you get away with it. As long as you know what the hell you're doing, you could absolutely, absolutely get away with it. Now, could you do that in mass? Yeah, you could. You could. You could certainly... Uh, create a bunch of, you know, register a bunch of dead people to vote. We've seen this historically as well. You could register a bunch of dead people to vote and then drop those ballots in there. You could, uh, you could do that with living people. I don't see why you couldn't. Um, could you manipulate the machines as has been claimed uh, for the, the Trump Biden election? Yeah, I think you could. Now that being said, there's a reason. So you hear these stories in the past about um, people changing their college grades, and they even do that sometimes. They fail miserably at that because of this thing called redundancy. So there's a paper trail that matches that as well. So if you're filling out paper ballots and then the machine is registering one thing and then you manipulate the machine so that it doesn't count some ballots or counts ballots improperly or dismisses ballots or whatever the, the hell the argument was. The redundancy, the audit that then takes place after that would catch that issue, and then they could investigate from that point. There's always going to be some sort of forensic information or evidence there that will tell you that something has happened. Okay, but could you do it? Yeah, you could do it. If if the if the conspiracy was big enough, you could probably 
take care of the redundancy issue as well. Now, now that I've said that and probably pissed off a lot of other people, <laughs> I guess we should just call this episode 38. Let's piss off everybody today. But now that I've said that, I've said in the past, I'm going to say it to this point too, just because something can be done doesn't mean that it will be done. Now, typically I talk about cybersecurity when I make that statement. And I, one of the, one of the examples that I use is RFIDs, you know, your, your the RFID chips in your passport or sometimes your driver's license or in uh, uh, credit cards, things like that. It's possible to have a backpack that's got equipment in it that as you walk down the street, you capture all of the RFID data that everybody's got in their wallets or in their purses. Certainly possible. And that's why you see there's a whole industry of people who sell wallets that are RFID, RFID, RFID blockers. All right. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that while you can do that, while it's certainly possible, it ain't done. It ain't done. That's a fraud type of industry. The, the you know, people who are selling those wallets, they rely on fear, uncertainty, and doubt in order to get you to purchase that useless friggin' wallet because there's no criminals that are doing that shit. Okay? So understand that. This election fraud thing. It's certainly possible. You want to give me the money. Some some government agency someplace wants to give me the money to see if I if I can in mass fabricate registrations, steal ballots, whatever the hell, I promise you, I can do that shit. And I can probably do it. If I get me a good little team together, I can probably do it and cover up the evidence at the same time. Probably. But that's a big job to do that shit. I'm saying I could do it and get away with it. But it's a big job to do it. There are easier ways to do that. The easiest way to do that goes back to the saying that I've had since Shadow Crew. The perception of truth is more important than the truth itself. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It matters what I can convince you of. So you take the media, you take politicians, you take all these outlets out there. If they continue to put forth an opinion, so they color all news pieces with opinion and everything else. Hmm. Think about Fox News. Think about CNN. They all have an editorial slant. So they continue to, to color every single news story with that editorial slant. The idea being to sway the opinion of a population. Sometimes you do it with climate. Sometimes you do it with right wing, left wing. Sometimes you do it with riots in the streets. Sometimes you do it with elections. So if you can sway the opinion of a populace, to be against a specific type of candidate, you achieve the exact same goals that you do that you would with forging documents, filing for dead people, stealing identities, hiding, hiding ballots, manipulating machines, everything else. That hard job is much easier accomplished by simply manipulating the opinion of a populace, which I fully believe is, is, being done every single day by both sides of the political spectrum. There's a reason that Fox, you know, Fox News is right wing, CNN, left wing. People migrate to that, that believe in both sides. And they are very big about making sure that every single story adheres to that base, to their specific base. So, you know, Trump, you know, the interesting thing with Trump 
was the election stolen? No, I don't think the election was stolen. I don't. Um, I think that the votes for Biden weren't so much the votes for Biden, but the votes against Donald Trump. The media, uh, press, all these individuals had, had been hammering the man so much that it skewed the opinion of a populace. Now, we're, we're evidently not allowed to say that there were good things that Donald Trump did. Yes, Donald Trump was an asshole. Anybody that doubts that, I don't know where the hell you've been, but he was an asshole. But that doesn't mean he didn't do some good things. Now, Joe Biden, is he a good guy? Shit, I don't know if he's a good guy or not. I do know that he's completely incompetent as president. I don't know when we've had a president as bad as he is from trying to redefine the definition of recession to all this other stuff, take, you know, trying to blame everybody else for everything except what his administration is responsible for. Just my opinion. I, here's the thing. Equal opportunity hater. I hate both sides. All right. Don't give a shit about Donald Trump. Don't give a shit about Joe Biden. Right now we're under the Biden administration. So I'm hammering them. Get a Republican in there, we're probably going to screw up too. But you know, I personally think the midterms are going to be very bloody for the Democrats. That's just my opinion on that. But the election, I would say that it was skewed, that the population was skewed to the point where the votes were against Trump, not for Biden. And I think that's a much more effective way to manipulate an election. All right. Fair and balanced or, you know, fair election results, that doesn't always mean, you know, manipulating machines, ballots, things like that. Just my opinion. And again, that's not saying that you can't do that. Give me enough money and I can show you in, on scale how you could actually do that kind of shit. Absolutely. Now, my, my problem is, is that when you see these security professionals get up on these media channels and say, oh, the, the election, there's no way it could be defrauded. Absolutely not. There's no fraud. Well, that's bullshit. Anything can be defrauded. I don't care what the machine is. I come from that history where I know because I used to do crime. Anything has the potential to be compromised and defrauded. Anytime you hear somebody say, no, that's not possible. They're lying to you for some reason. Okay. Understand that they're lying to you for some reason. All right. So next thing is, as we know, the name of this episode is Megyn Kelly follow-up crypto election fraud relationship advice. So let's talk about some relationship advice. Let's see if I've still got that window pulled up. And of course, idiot Brett does not. So I need to pull that up because uh, the thing is, is that I, um, so this is my third go around on a podcast show. The first one was with Carice Hendrick and we did the uh, online fraudcast. And the online fraudcast was all about talking to merchants and retailers, that segment of the population. It was all about talking to merchants and retailers about what they needed to do to protect themselves from the type of person that I used to be. Carice Hendrick's a very good uh, anti-fraud type of person. I am a very good fraudster. So you put us both together and the conversations, at least for merchants and retailers, was very, very beneficial. That podcast, and I'm looking for this, uh, this email right now, so please forgive me. But that podcast was, well, it was short-lived. And the reason it was short-lived is because I am the guy that will say the things that need 
to be said. In this case, I was uh, in San Francisco. I had called out a bank. I'd actually called them a bunch of assholes from the stage. Turned out that they were in the audience at that point in time, and they took exception to that. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. As a consequence, now here's the interesting thing. I called it out when everybody, even my co-host on the show, behind the scenes, oh, yeah, they're doing that all the time. Oh, yeah, they're horrible. But when it came time to, you know, say what needed to be said, I was left high and dry. As a result, ultimately, as a result of that instance, I was banned from the conference. I've not been back to that conference since that point um, because the bank pays the conference a lot of money to help sponsor the conference. And as I, I actually talked to a couple of the conference guys a couple of months ago, and uh, I was at another conference, and uh, they were there as well, the conference organizers. And uh, you know, I made the comment. I was like, yeah. You know, shame I can't come back to your show anymore, to your conference. And they were like, well, you know, telling the truth is all great. And this was their exact words. Telling the truth is great, except when it hits you. And I was like, enough said, understand completely. You guys have a great day. Well, ultimately, that action of mine ended up in the online broadcast ending. And uh, I've also not, I, I guess, the friendship with Carice Hendrickson what ended that point um he doesn't really respond to me anymore or anything else like that so i guess that was part of it as well but that was the first podcast a after that i started the anglerfish podcast or while that was ending i started the anglerfish podcast the first several episodes because i like to hear my own voice the first several episodes had to do with my background story that brett johnson story and I talked a lot about the abuse that I had experienced, that my sister had experienced, and also the people that I victimized had experienced. And I got a lot of feedback from that. I got people who uh, who would email me and they would tell me their experience or they would thank me for sharing and being able to open up things like that. That has not changed. Either from the Lex Friedman show, the Megyn Kelly show, whatever podcast I'm doing, or my own show at the Brett Johnson show, I have people that reach out to me and ask for advice or share their story with me or simply thank me for opening up that it that it really helped them come through some of their issues as well. Recently, I had a lady on LinkedIn reach out to me and she sent me a very long message. And I, I, I'm supposed to be calling her back. I've still not had the chance because I've been dealing with a tree falling on my house, but I'm gonna call her and I'm also gonna talk about what she said on this show right now as well. So I cut out most of uh, the stuff that would identify her because I wanted to protect her identity. But she says, after a couple of paragraphs, she says, this weekend, I broke off my engagement with my fiance and ended it. There are some similarities in your story and thought I would ask, I would share and ask for help. I dated him back in 2012, but it didn't work out then. He, cont he contacted me a couple of years ago Right after he got out of jail, he spent the better part of five years in the county detention center. Throughout our relationship, I learned and found he was doing cocaine. The first time was bad. He lied and lied. I thought he was cheating on me, and he promised he wasn't, but didn't do anything to comfort me, so I continued thinking about it. I have never been exposed to cocaine, so I didn't know the signs. Thanks to you, 
I now know that it can impair your ability to get an erection, although not one he suffered from. But I did learn the signs that he would exhibit when he was getting high. The second time, he promised he wouldn't do it again, and he even swore on his parents' grave. I believed it. Whoops, he did it again. I am not sure why I stayed, but I did. Recently, he has been complaining about not having any money. I mean complaining and exhibiting signs of using. I kept saying, I don't understand. He brings home about $2,500 a month. He gives me $500. So where is the other $2,000 going? He has no bills. We went on vacation to South Carolina last week. So I didn't press the subject because I wanted to have a good time. Then when we got home, I searched his car and his backpack that he takes to work. I found the stuff he uses to smoke cocaine in his backpack. I don't know the proper terminology. And I found his $500 watch in the car that he was going to pawn. He denied it all, saying that he was pawning the watch to help pay for the wedding bands. And the other stuff was from a long time ago, the, the smoking equipment. I told him I didn't believe him and kind of left it as that. Waited a day or two and started asking him about the money issues. I asked him if it was because he was using and he swore that, he, that it wasn't. I asked if I could look at his bank account and he said no. He said there were things that he didn't want me to know. So I asked him rhetorically if he thought it was right to get married in two months and start our future by holding things from me. He didn't answer. So after some arguing, I broke it off. We live on my parents' property so that I can care for them. I told him I would move into the house and he could stay for two months to get his shit together. So I still have access to it. I continued to ask what he was hiding. I asked if he realized that this was basically the deciding factor for me to end it. Nothing. All he had to do was be honest. I can't say for sure what would have happened, but it would have meant something that he was being honest. Last night I broke down and went to talk to him. Long story short, it was drugs again. I'm heartbroken. I can't believe that he threw away our future for drugs. He has been providing a lot of excuses. He had a messed up childhood. He felt that we were like leave it to beaver, just always stayed at home and never went out. All of his problems are in Baltimore. And if we would move, it would cure everything because he wouldn't know anyone to get drugs from. I told him that when you have an addiction, that addiction always comes first. Brett, you talk about that a lot and it has always stuck with me because of his issues. He keeps saying how much he regrets it and always seems to mess up good things. He never wanted to hurt me, blah, blah, blah. I just responded that he can say all he wants, that he is an addict, and he put that before me. My head knows that the addiction always comes first, but my heart doesn't. This is kind of heavy, but thought you may have some guidance on how the other person hurt by the addiction moves on. So she goes on. She goes on for uh, for several paragraphs. And she reached out to me because I talk about um, my addiction to crime. But so I lived on that side. Absolutely. I was the addict that put an addiction before relationships, friends, family, everything else. But I'm also the guy that had a fiance 
that had addiction problems as well. So I've been on both sides of that equation. I will tell you this. First and foremost, you are not to blame for anything that's going on. Anything. Every single step of the way, this guy has decided to do this. And I want you to understand, this is not the first, this is not the second, this is the third time just with you. More than likely, he's done this with other relationships as well. You're not the first rodeo, all right? You're absolutely right that he has put the drugs before the relationship. And I, I know that with me, I met this girl, this woman, and uh, even today I want to say I loved her, all right? But I'm going to tell you, you can't love anything except the addiction if you're addicted to something. The addiction always comes first. With me, crime was my addiction, that criminal mindset, that mentality. And as a matter of fact, Elizabeth, at one point, after she finds out I'm a criminal and everything else, she makes the remark, you could have at least, you could have gotten a job. And she, there was nothing I could say to that because she was absolutely right. I could have stopped breaking the law and gotten a job and had that relationship with her that I, that I wanted or thought about wanted. But I chose criminal activity in front of that. That was my priority. This gentleman, this is his third time, at least his third time you've caught him with this. All right. And you've taken him back at least two times. I'm hoping it's not the third time because he's not going to stop that behavior. He's not. All right. If you keep taking, the only thing the first two times have told him is, is that you've accepted it, that he can smoke cocaine, keep it, try to keep it hidden from you, smoke cocaine. Co so he's a crackhead. He can smoke cocaine and uh, have this addiction and still have you because you're going to continue to take him back. So you've became the enabler in the situation and you're actually making it easier for him to continue that addiction. Okay. I know this I, because I've been on that other side too. I know this is a hard pill to swallow, but you need to understand that there's no such thing as unconditional love. There's always a line in the sand. It could be cheating. It can be drug use. It can be domestic abuse. I mean, whatever that is, there's always a line in the sand where you, where you have to say, no, whether I love this person or not, I am unwilling to accept this drug activity especially this, that's absolutely that line in the sand. You, you have to, you've got to follow through. I'm glad that you've broken up with him. That's exactly what you should do. You should not take him back at all because he's made this choice the entire time. Uh, you made the comment that he had, uh, he gets in $2,500 a month. He only gives you 500. What the fuck? All right. What the hell's going on there? That's another issue there because uh, here's my thing. I'm from Eastern Kentucky, right or wrong. I was brought up with the understanding that it's the man's job to provide for the family. You got some deadbeat in there that gets 2,500 in and he's only giving you 500. What the hell? So you have to support everything else? No, at the, at the very least, at the very least, it should be 50-50 at the very least. So that's another issue altogether. That's, I think that's him using you, manipulating you so that he can use the drugs. And not only is he using drugs, but he's lied to you during this entire relationship. 
How can you trust someone like that? You can't. You can't. That that he's already established a history of lying, and he's going to continue to lie, and you're never going to have the same trust back that you did if you ever had it to begin with. All right. So I, I don't see that this gentleman, from what you've told me, I don't see that this gentleman has been moving forward at all in trying to overcome his addictions. What I do see is that he continues to go back to his addictions, continues to lie to you about it, continues to make excuses. You just told me some excuses, continues to make excuses for his behavior instead of accepting responsibility and owning his issues and problems. I see that as well. So um, the best possible thing you could do is break up with him and not just for a few weeks. You've got to break up with this dude. If you, if you truly love this guy, breaking up is the absolutely the best thing that could possibly happen because you take him back. He's going to say to himself, it's okay. And then he's going to backslide again into drug use. All right. But you break up with him, continue on with your life. If you're truly meant to be with this guy, a few years down the road, he's cleaned his ass up a few years down the road. He's cleaned his ass up and you can see about stuff then. If you're not meant to be with the guy, the best, again, it's the best thing you can do, break up with him, continue on with your life, and you find that mate or you live your life solo or whatever the hell you're going to do, just do you. Be healthy for you. Because right now, you're not even healthy for you being involved in this type of environment. So it's it's important to, for him. It's important for you because he's not going to make that decision. He's incapable of it. So you've got to be the adult. So um, it's important that you end this and it swiftly. If he doesn't have any place to say, guess guess whose fault that is. Stay, guess whose fault that is. That's his fault. Okay? That's his fault. Let him find some place to say. He gets $2,500 a month in. That money he's spending on crack cocaine, he can use to rent someplace, and he'll be fine. Okay? He can get a better job, too. He'll be fine. All right? So I urge you to please end it with him. Get him off the property. Don't have anything to do with him. Carry on with your life. Be healthy. And that's a hard thing to say because I know it tugs at the heart. You know, I, I was I was engaged to this girl that was addicted to cocaine. And um, it is a it's a horrible thing. Any type of addiction. My crime addiction is horrible. Cocaine. Um, her addiction to cocaine, horrible. You know, she did things that I'm sure she didn't want to do. But that's part of the addiction. And um, I truly believe that someone who's addicted cannot love or anything but the addiction because the addiction always, always comes first. Always. You know, that's a hard pill for me to swallow. For me to say that my crime was more important than my relationships. But that's honestly 100% the truth. It wasn't until I found my wife, now Michelle, that, or she found me, that um, I started to understand and appreciate that. And I would urge you to uh, disassociate yourself from this gentleman, carry on with your life, and um, work on, you know, healthy relationships. I think that's the best bet for you. And I'll call you as soon as I, as soon as I have a chance right now. I got a tree through my house, but uh, I, I do wish you the best, truly. Okay. All right, moving right along. Get a little deep there, Brett. Get a little deep. All right, moving right along. That's a race. Oh, 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 oh. So here's the thing. January 6th, 
CNN, and I, you know, I wake up every morning, I watch CNN, watch Fox News, so I can be pissed off at everybody. CNN, boy, they are, they are banging the drum on the January 6th, 6th bullshit. And they've been banging the drum. And I got to tell you, I don't care. I truly don't care. I don't. For me, I, I view that as a dog and pony show. The Democrats are not going to indict anyone of consequence. It's not going to happen. They're simply doing this shit. They're spending money in order to appeal to their base. Okay? So I don't care about that. Anybody that doesn't realize that Donald Trump was an asshole, I don't know where you've been. Anybody that doesn't think that Donald Trump sat on his ass and was secretly hoping that they would take over the Capitol and he would remain president, if it takes an, if it takes some sort of congressional hearings for you to realize that, I don't know where you've been. What does get my attention? It comes out that the United States Secret Service deleted text messages from that specific, those days. That's a problem because Congress had notified the Secret Service that they wanted those text messages. And then after being notified, the Secret Service deletes the messages. Really? That, to me, that is the biggest story that comes out of these January 6th hearings, that we've got a law enforcement agency, one of the top law enforcement agencies on the planet, that is basically doing whatever they want to unfettered, that they think that they're allowed to do whatever they want to, whatever they want to, without consequence. Now, my opinion, and there's been a, there's been a few excuses as to why those messages were deleted. The big excuse right now is, well, it, we were doing an upgrade, and they were mistake. You know, it just they just those messages they just disappeared. They <laughs> they were there. We did the upgrade. They ain't there. I'm gonna call bullshit on that. That's exactly what I'm gonna call. I'm gonna say that those text messages, more than likely. This is just my opinion, but I hypothesize that those text messages have some of these agents saying, oh, yeah, man, I, ho I hope this one gets strung up. Oh, man, it's really popping off now. Oh, this is exactly what we need to do. Oh, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Revolution, revolution, evolution, revolution. I think that may be a lot of the messages or the, the, the slant of the messages that got deleted. And I think that probably what happened was, is you've got the Secret Service sitting there, they're reading these messages, and they're sitting there going, well, shit, that's going to be very embarrassing for our entire law enforcement agency. And we've already been embarrassed several times over the years, me being one of the guys that embarrassed them. So instead of having to, you know, be embarrassed with this, it's easier to face the consequences of getting of doing away with the messages instead of facing what those messages actually said. So they deleted the messages. That's my opinion. The fact that something like that can happen, that something like that is possible, that a law enforcement agency under the order of Congress to deliver that kind of stuff, and then they refuse by deleting the messages, I think that's much more important than the dog and pony show that the overall January 6th hearings are going through right now. I think that if there's a danger to our democracy, it's that right there. Just my opinion. I, I, I mean, what are we just going to accept that? 
Because if they can do it with text messages, they can do it with investigations. They can do it with evidence. They can do it across the board with everything. And here's the thing. I think that most Secret Service agents are outstanding individuals. I think they're there, much like the FBI agents, that they are there to help people not hurt. And I have a deep found respect for them. But somewhere in there, somewhere in there is some idiot, some fuck who thinks they can do whatever they want to. And I think there needs to be house cleaning going on. Absolutely, there needs to be house cleaning going on. And uh, I, I'm just absolutely amazed that that happened. Truly. I mean, I am absolutely amazed that something like that was was capable of being done in this day and age. Moving right along. So, hey, we are, I don't know how, how, how long we've been recording now. It's a little bit long episode because, uh, you know, the thing is, it's a little bit long episode because we were on that forced hiatus with the tree falling on the house. Uh, I want to do a Q&A session right now. Uh, I was doing a webinar for a security company called Good Labs, and we've already done the webinar and everything. But prior to that webinar, one of the people over there, they sent me over a questionnaire with some questions on there and asked if I would answer them. Well, I read through the questions. I thought the questions were extremely good, and I thought it would make a good show in and of itself. So I'm going to go through some of these questions, answer those. It gives a better uh, uh, kind of uh, insight to criminal activities, things like that, that I think will be beneficial to the listeners here as well. So there are 11 questions. The first, and we're just going to go through them one by one. I'll, I'll read the question, answer the question, pop off, and that'll complete the show for the day. So the first question, question number one, your history and experience speak for itself, but starting from the beginning, could you share your story briefly to what led you to being involved in cybercrime? What piqued your interest? How relevant was account takeover and account impersonation in the early 1990s? So, um, you know, most people know that listen to my show or see me speak or anything. My life of crime began when I was 10 years old, uh, shoplifting food. For me and my sister. Then it turned into clothes and jewelry and everything like that. My mom comes home, sees the stuff. She joins us and she starts running us as shoplifters as she goes to get her mother as well to join us in shoplifting. And that's where my life of crime began was that. So I grew up in that type of criminal environment, knowing how to, uh, learning how to traffic drugs, do breaking and entering, uh, charity fraud, insurance fraud, so stolen cars, burned cars, uh, uh, faked accidents, burning homes, um, illegally strip mining coal, document fraud, uh, it's not stimulus, but disaster type fraud, uh, like Eastern Kentucky is going to be hit with here shortly. I grew up knowing how to do that. At the same time, I grew up pretty tech savvy. It's pretty tech savvy. Uh, my first computer was a Texas Instruments 994A. They was on clearance that, that year, and uh, they were selling them for $99. My dad stood in line forever to be able to get me one of these things. So that was my first computer. I was very young when I first got that. Um, from there, it was a VIC-20, a Commodore 64, a Tandy, and then you know continues up to there. Until today, I've got an Alienware. Not that I wanted an Alienware, but because of crypto mining and everything else, you just simply could not afford to purchase a graphics card and build your own system like I'm used to doing. So I bought a pre-made system because it was cheaper. So I've always been tech savvy. Um, what the appeal to me with cybercrime 
was the ease of which those crimes can be committed. And when I say ease, it's, it's the Internet itself and technology causes people, results in people trusting in those environments and with those tools more than they will in a face-to-face -face type situation. All right. So, you know, you, you take your technology, your cell phone, your laptop, your desktop computer. We inherently trust the technology with which we're, which we're given. We trust our, we trust those devices. We trust the news that comes across the line. You know, we don't verify it. And that's the problem with fake news. We trust the caller ID. We trust all these things here. Um, so there's an inherent amount of trust that's built into the internet. People come into these environments trusting. They figure that, hey, because it's high technology, because it's sophisticated, it's also sophisticated about protecting us. And that is absolutely not the case. If anything, it's less secure than you would be in the real world or in the physical world, because in the physical world, the criminal has to be face-to-face -face with you, all right, or over the phone or something like that. And because of that, the criminal often has to view the consequences of their actions. They have to see the harm that they're causing. And it's much more difficult to, to do that instead of having that barrier of anonymity that the internet or technology often provides. Um, so that, that was, that's a lot of the appeal for me or was to me at the time. Um, the thing is, is like I said, I, I was involved in crime with my mom's side of the family. I branched off on my own in the mid to late nineties. I faked, I'm sorry, 1994, I faked a car accident to get the insurance money, to get married, move from Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky to go to university. And that's where this crime stuff starts. It starts with, uh, with Beanie Babies, which is a second question that we're going into. Second question. Articles suggest that eBay and the Beanie Baby craze allowed you to first discover the potential behind internet fraud. What about this appealed to you? How were you able to identify these areas of risk and weakness? So what happens is, for those who may not have been paying attention to anything I've ever talked about, I get married. We move from Hazard to Lexington, Kentucky, and um, I end up quitting my job, going into fraud. I find eBay. I liked eBay a hell of a lot. Knew there was some way to make money on eBay. Didn't really know how until Bill O'Reilly gives me a lot of inspiration. He used to host Inside Edition, this 30-minute news tabloid show. And they were profiling Beanie Babies at that point, this high-dollar collectible in the mid to late 90s. The one they were talking about was Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant, selling for $1,500. So I'm sitting there watching like, shit, I need to find me a peanut. So I skip class the next day, go around to all the shops looking for the damn thing, figure out fairly quickly, you know, a few hours, <laughs> that... Uh, well, idiot, he's not in the shops. Peanuts on eBay for $1,500. But they had these gray Beanie Baby elephants for $8. So I bought a gray Beanie Baby for $8. Stopped by Kroger on the way home, picked up a pack of blue Rit dye. Went home, tried to dye the little guy. Turns out they're made out of polyester. Don't hold dye very well. Get them out of the bath. Look like they've got the mage. Ripped a lady off with $1,500. Put a picture of a real one online. She thought I had the real thing. She wins the bid. As soon as she wins the bid, I send her a message. Hey, congratulations. I'm glad you won. By the way, uh, we've never done any business before. I, I, I don't know if I can trust you. Tell you what, to protect us both, 
What I need you to do is go down to the United States Post Office, pick up a couple of money orders totaling $1,500, send them out to me. It's issued by the United States government. It protects you and me. Send me those money orders. Once that, once I get them, I'll send you your animal. She believes that, sends me the money orders. I cash them out, send her the creature, get a phone call. I didn't order this. My response, lady, you, you, you ordered a blue elephant. I mean, I, I sent you a blue-ish elephant. And that's the first lesson of cybercrime as well. You know, if you delay, delay a victim long enough, a lot of them get exasperated, throw their hands in the air, walk away. You don't hear from them again, and they don't complain to law enforcement. Now, that, that story, which I've told hundreds of times by this point in time, that story is kind of a microcosm of how internet frauds and crimes work. First, you've got a criminal, me, that's more than willing to victimize a, someone, a potential victim, all right? I'm more than willing to victimize someone. I'm more than willing to scam or defraud someone, all right? So I've got the willing. I'm, I've got the ego big enough to think that I can get by with it, all right? I think I'm good enough to do it. And because of my background, I've got the knowledge to defraud this victim, all right? I also understand that trust on the internet is established through a combination of technology, tools, and social engineering. Technology, that cell phone, that laptop, that desktop, we, like I said a minute ago, we inherently trust that technology, even though we don't understand it a lot. That that sophistication, for some reason, it, it's like it's magic. Well, if it's that sophisticated, it must protect us as well. No, it doesn't. But we trust it anyway. What we don't understand is that criminals use a variety of tools to manipulate that technology. They use spoof phone calls. So instead of seeing the number that they're calling from on your caller ID, you see your bank, the FBI, the IRS, the Social Security Administration, blah, 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 blah. They use SOX 5 proxies so that while they may be physically located in Ghana, Nigeria, New York, they can make it appear that they're in Florida, California, Denver, South America, wherever they want to be. So they use technology and tools, lays a base level of trust, and then we see how good of a con man, a liar, social engineer that criminal is in manipulating that potential victim into giving up information, access, data, or cash. This beanie baby is right there. Okay, so I'm more than willing. I've got the ego. I've got the knowledge to do it. I'm also, I understand how trust is established online. So on that end, everything is kosher from the criminal point of view. I've got a victim that really wants something. In this case, this victim really wants a blue beanie baby elephant. But it could easily be a PlayStation 5. It could be an Xbox Series X. It could be a camera. It could be a, a type of crypto token. It could be love and romance on a website one of these dating services. It can be whatever that is, the desire of the victim plays in. This victim wants, this potential victim wants something, all right? You mix both of those together, or all, all those things together, the willingness of the criminal, the way trust is established, the desire of the victim, that desire, what does that actually equate to? That equates to me being able to manipulate that victim to the point where they're acting more out of an emotional stance than they are a logical or reasonable point of view. All right. So all those things together means that I'm probably going to be successful at committing crime. 
I also understand that, hey, this victim, they're going to give up after a while. They're going to walk away and they're probably not going to report anything to law enforcement. So I'm going to be able to walk away scot-free and I don't have to see the consequences of my actions. So all that together, and you, this is this this is this beanie baby story that I've been telling. It's it's basically a microcosm of all these today's scams, frauds, hustles, everything else that goes on online. <clears throat> so, um, how were you able to identify these areas of risk or weakness? For me, it is um, it's coming from that background, that criminal environment, the background of the, those adults who were constantly manipulating people. Me becoming a social engineer in order to survive that adult environment when I was a child means that I'm able to read people very quickly, understand their motivations, their fears, everything else, and be able to ping into that and use that against them almost on the fly. All right. So hope that answers that question. Number three, you mentioned in previous interviews that if you delay a victim long enough, they tend to get exasperated and walk away. Do you think this ideology is still relevant today? Why do you think victims give up? In your experience, how much of an impact does this have on the current digital banking and payment service space from an account takeover perspective? Absolutely, it's more relevant today than it was back in the day. And I don't care if you're a company, I don't care if you're an individual. There's a story that just popped out a couple of days ago that Uber, evil ass Uber, had experienced a breach and they kept that breach hidden from the people who had their information compromised. So a lot of the times, whether it's a company or it's, and typically companies, if they do admit to a breach, they try to minimize it as as much as they possibly can. Um, individuals, a lot of the time, the individual, they simply don't know who to, who to complain to. Do you complain local, state, federal? If it's federal, there has to be a dollar amount before the feds will actually start to look at it. If it's local or state, what jurisdiction do you complain to? Because, hey, some of these criminals are either out of state or they're in a different country altogether. So that's part of the problem that why people just give up about complaining after a while. They eat the losses and try to move on with their lives. You have those types of issues. You have the issue where we've got 7,500 security companies, over 7,500 security companies, and the media that talks about cyber criminals as being hackers, being these, these upper tier computer geniuses who you're not going to be able to ever catch. Completely untrue, but it manipulates the mindset of these victims to think, well, there's nothing we can do. At the same time, you've got, take the FBI, for example, you've got 37,000 agents across the United States, across 56 different field offices. Of those 37,000 plus agents, only about 200 of them concentrate on cybercrime. And of those 200, a lot of them deal with nation state attacks, drug trafficking, stuff like that. So you've not got a lot of the manpower to handle a lot of the complaints that are coming through. So you've got all these issues that are working together that help feed into that idea that the victim is completely powerless and can't do anything. And because of that, I think the victims, whether an institution or an individual, I think that they, a lot of the times, they don't even worry about trying to, you know, file a police report or anything else like that. They just give up, walk away. Um, how much of an impact does it have on digital banking and payment service space from an account takeover's perspective? So the problem is, is that if you're not, if you're a company that's not pursuing charges, the criminal 
someone like I used to be, I can continually try to hit your service, not only me, but all of my compadres can continually try to hit your service and find a way to get past that security without fear of consequence. You are not going to do anything. So I can continue to ping you. Criminals are very good about knowing which companies are prosecuting, which companies aren't, and they share that within their criminal environment. So if you're one of these companies that does not press charges, and there's a whole shitload that doesn't press charges, many more don't press charges than do. So if you're one of these companies that are like that, it basically gives a free card to criminals to try to hit you as hard and as fast as they can until they find a way in. And they will, believe you me, they will find a way in. Number four, jumping into Shadow Crew. Tell us a little bit about the forum's early days. What led to its creation? How did you manage its exclusivity and stay under the law enforcement radar? Well, first of all, we did not stay under law enforcement radar. We were the big kids on the block. We were really the only game on the block. And as such, you know, it was kind of like a field of dreams for criminals. If you build it, they will come. We built this thing. And the reason it was built is before there's three sites there's counterfeit library shadow crew and then carter planet i ran both counterfeit library and shadow crew before those two sites come into play then later carter planet before those two sites counterfeit and shadow crew come into play the only avenue you had to commit organized online crime and all online crime is organized the only avenue you had was an IRC session, internet relay chat, this rolling chat board where you didn't know who you were talking to. If you could believe them, if they knew what they were talking about, if you could trust them, uh, if they had a product or service, if they actually had it, if it worked, or if they were just going to rip you off because everyone there was a crook. Shadow Crew gave a trust mechanism that criminals could use, a large communication channel, forum-type structure where individuals from different time zones could reference conversations days, weeks, months old, take part in, learn from, engage in those conversations. The person's screen name became their brand. You knew by looking at the screen name what that person's history was. If you could trust that person, learn from, network with that person. We had vouching systems, review systems, escrow systems in place, all with the singular purpose of establishing trust with one criminal and another when they would never meet, never know each other's real name, never know what each other look like. And that's important because there are three necessities to online crime, gathering data, committing crime, cashing out. All three necessities have to work in conjunction. If they don't, the crime fails. The problem is that one single criminal, one guy, can't do all three things. He can do one thing, sometimes two, never all three, either because of a skill gap that criminal simply doesn't know how to do that one thing or a geographic problem. That criminal is in an area where they cannot fulfill one of those three necessities, typically putting cash in pocket. That's why cybercrime is never, never, ever a solo person attacking you. It's always a group of people. Somewhere there's a group of people that's worked together to ultimately target you or your organization. Shadow, that was, to me, that's the big thing that Shadow Crew and Counterfeit Library established. Uh, we were also a marketplace for criminal wares. Think of any type of financial cyber cybercrime information, product, tool, service that's needed. Started on Shadow Crew. We also got into trafficking drugs, counterfeit currency, things like that as well. Uh, nothing at all to be proud of, but that was Shadow Crew. Um, its early days was a building process. It was it was 
to us, it was not, we did not really consider ourselves the start of modern cybercrime. What we saw was, is we wanted to be able to steal money and be profitable. And we saw a set of problems that needed solutions. So it was all about problem solving. That's what we did. And we never really considered the historical aspect of what Shadow Crew did or anything else like that until, you know, today you see it in a lot of the news and things like that. But back then it was basically just, hey, we're trying to solve a problem. We're trying to be profitable. We concentrated on that. Um, law enforcement exclusivity, like I said, that was not a case because we were really the only kids on the block. We were the big kids on the block as well. I mean, Dimitri was over, uh, he ran, he had the Russian site, uh, Carter Planet, but most fraudsters were English speaking. Most business was done on the English side. Even the, uh, the Carter Planet guys frequented Shadow Crew more than they did their own environments. Um, that attracted law enforcement attention. Absolutely it did. So we, we were not, we did not stay under the radar. We typically saw IPs coming from law enforcement agencies. We saw investigators coming in the environment. We saw our names mentioned on forums and news groups, things like that as well. We were certainly not under, um, under the radar at all. The, the issue is, is that law enforcement had no clue what they were dealing with and they had no idea about how to track or apprehend these individuals at this point in time. Okay. So moving right along. Cyber criminals are well versed. This is number five. Cyber criminals are well versed in the security and terms of service of their potential victimized entity. You mentioned that they are probably the only ones who read terms of service. Could you elaborate more on this topic? How important is it for them to understand the entity they are attacking? What would make an entity more appealing to them? What I have said in the past is that there are only two groups that read terms of service, criminals and attorneys, and is there a difference? You know, the problem is, is that we as individuals, legitimate people, legal people, we go to a website, we use an app, we don't read the terms of service. We're more involved in getting the product or service or playing the game that that website or vendor is offering than understanding why that terms of service is there, what they're doing with our data, our privacy, uh, everything else. We don't pay attention to that. We just accept it in order to get to that carrot that that website is dangling at us, all right? Criminals, though, we understand that the terms of service talks about privacy. It talks about data, what they're collecting, which might be important to us when, we come, when we're looking to steal something. It talks about shipping policies, payment policies. It may even mention some of the security that's being used to protect the users that are visiting the website. So you can get a lot of information from simply reading the terms of service. So it becomes very important. Um, what makes, let's read this through this question again. You mentioned they are probably the only ones. Okay, I covered that. Could you elaborate more on this topic? Sure. Again, I read the, from a criminal point of view, I read the terms of service, try to figure out the security, to try to figure out the shipping policies, the payment policies, how soon you guys, how soon a website will ship after payment has been made. If I'm looking to commit credit card fraud, something like that. The shipping days, how soon all this stuff happens, the way they process payment potentially security that's in play, everything else. You can get a lot of information from terms of service on a website. How important is it to understand the entity they are attacking? It is of the utmost importance. You have to understand who you're trying to victimize, whether that's an individual 
or a company. If you don't understand that, the potential of failure is very high. That's something that even the good guys, they still don't understand that. The good guys are more worried about the tools and techniques that the criminals are using than they are about understanding the criminal mindset that's looking to attack them and understanding the way that criminals work and operate together. Okay, what would make an entity more appealing to them? Simply sharing that information. I mean, if, I, uh, if I'm reading your terms of service and it's talking about a security product, what I can do while I've not victimized that specific website before, if I know they're using a specific security tool, I can go back to my criminal associates in these environments and I can I can run it through. I can search for everything. Are there any techniques to you that I can use to bypass the security? Typically there is. All right. So um, that makes it more appealing. The shipping policies being explained, the payment policies being explained, the type of data that's being uh, captured on the website, things like that. Anything that I can use to make myself profitable by victimizing you or your website if it's in, if it's mentioned in the terms of service, that becomes very, very important to me. All right. All right. So number six, you talk about the importance of networking and skill sharing. Could you explain the importance of skill sharing? To what extent are criminals willing to work together? And how has this agreement payment facilitated or how is it facilitated? We understood back in Shadow Crew that by being open source, by sharing and exchanging information freely amongst each other, we become more knowledgeable and more profitable at the end of the day. Now, what does that actually mean? Here's what it actually means. All right. You take a group because some of these websites today are millions of members large. That's the way that cybercrime has exploded over the years. When Shadow Crew gets shut down in 2004, we ended with 4,000 members. Fast forward to 2017, Alpha Bay gets shut down 240,000 members. 2019, Black Market, just a marketplace gets shut down, 1.15 million members, all pre-pandemic. The pandemic, the government gave money away freely to any fraudster who wanted it. So the numbers exploded. Now you've got websites, forums, that sometimes are millions of members large. So you take a, a set of humans, say just a few hundred thousand humans, that are all openly, freely sharing and exchanging information in real time about targets, techniques, tools, products, services, users, everything else. That type of set of human beings that are doing that is much more successful than any machine learning product or artificial intelligence product that any company is using as security. It will defeat machine learning and AI every day, any day, because you've got human beings in real time sharing and exchanging information, and you simply are working through these problems. And that's much more successful than any machine learning AI system that's out there. Much more successful. You're not going to beat that with machine learning or AI. So that's the, the, the importance of that cannot be overstated. There is nothing more important than collaborating and working together from that criminal point of view. Nothing more important than that. Now, yes, you have tutorials that are being sold. You have classes that are being instructed, everything else. You have some people that, that hide certain techniques and targets and things like that. But overall, that open type of environment is a lot of the reason that cybercrime is as, as, is as successful as it is today. 
To what extent are criminals willing to work together? Always, always. It is understood that a criminal cannot do all three of those necessities by themselves. So you have criminals that go to a vendor and they'll buy PII. They'll buy stolen credit card details or credentials or you know spoof phone call services or ransomware or any whatever they need to do to then commit the crime. And then a lot of those people who commit the crime, because they're in a geographic area where they cannot cash out and put literal cash in pocket themselves, they will then sign on to money mules. So it's all about working together to be more profitable at the end of the day. If they did not work together, cybercrime would not be as successful as it is today. Nowhere near. Okay, so that's that's really it. Um, number seven, to your knowledge, how was law enforcement able to arrest 33 people? What tactics were used to tie those individuals to shadow groups? So what happens is, Shadow Crew, we were very popular. And initially, the popularity became through through credit fraud. What happens is it was CMP fraud, card not present. We were doing these phishing schemes. And back then, a phishing attack, you could ask 20 or 30 different questions. You know, you'd get mother's maiden, driver's license, date of birth, account numbers, passwords, card numbers, pins, everything that you possibly needed to take over someone's account. Back then, that was the case. Nowadays, if you're doing a phishing attack, you basically ask for two things, login credentials, and that's it. That's really all you're able to get because that level of awareness on the victim side has been raised so much over the years. But back then, we were getting that, and the data that we were getting, initially, the only thing we could use it for was either an account takeover or to commit CNP fraud card not present fraud. So you'd get online, you'd find a laptop, you'd buy the laptop, have it shipped to a drop address, and you'd resell it on eBay, Craigslist, something like that. A good carter, those people who were doing that, a good carter would profit thirty to $40,000 a month. Well, what happens is we were always interested in being able to encode counterfeit cards, take them to an ATM, cash it out. All right. That was always what we were looking for because that's where the real money was at that point in time, if you could find it. We were getting card numbers. We were getting pins. You can't encode most of the time. You can't encode that on a card because you have to have complete track two data. Track two is the card number. So on the back of your credit or debit card, that magnetic stripe. Track two is the card number. There's a forward slash 16 digit algorithm out the side of that. You have to know that algorithm. You can't guess it. You can't generate it for it to encode, take it to an ATM, cash it out. What come to find out at that point in time, none of the banks had implemented the hash for track two, meaning we had the card number, we had the pin. So to encode it, since they hadn't implemented the hash, the only thing you had to do was you put the card number, a forward slash, any 16 digits out beside of it, it would encode so you could take it to an ATM. At that point, instead of a carter stealing thirty to forty thousand dollars a month profit, it then became thirty to forty thousand dollars a day. That got law enforcement attention. My forum techie, a guy by the name of Albert Gonzalez, this was called the CVV1 hack, all right, is what what the name of it was. My forum techie starts doing this, starts going to ATMs, cashing out thirty to forty thousand dollars a day. So one day he's in New Jersey, broad daylight, he's standing at an ATM for 40 minutes. 40 minutes, 
feeding in one counterfeit card after another, pulling out $20 bills, stuffing them in a backpack. Just so happens across the way, a couple of New Jersey cops notice this kid standing at an ATM for 40 minutes. After they watch him for 40 minutes, one cop says to another, wonder what he's doing. The next cop says, I don't know. I'll go over and ask. He walks up to Albert. Albert's wearing a wig, disguise, everything else. Albert falls apart, gets arrested, flips, goes to work for the Secret Service. Now, back in the day, law enforcement had no clue what they were doing. That's the way things were back then. They didn't know how to track anybody. They didn't know how to catch anybody. They didn't know. They didn't understand the cyber criminal mindset. Things have changed since that point. Today, they are extremely competent. Back then, not so much. Not so much. So they asked Albert, hey, how would you catch these guys? And Albert says, well, I would. Have you ever thought about using a VPN? Well, what's a VPN? So we had to explain to them what a VPN was. And they were like, huh, that's not a bad idea. So I had retired from Shadow Group. I was doing tax return identity theft. I was seeing all the IPs that were coming in. I, I saw the writing on the wall. I was head of, this, head of this damn thing. And I was like, no, I'm stepping aside before we all go to prison and I get more time than anybody. So I retired. As Albert's getting arrested, Albert comes back into Shadow Crew, becomes the head of Shadow Crew, makes all the transactions go through this VPN, which was owned by the Secret Service. And that's how the Secret Service got all the drop addresses, got real names of individuals, dollar amounts, everything else, and ended up arresting 33 people across six countries in six hours. All right. So that was it. Number eight. What were your thoughts originally when Shadow Crew made the front cover of Forbes magazine? So I was in Charleston, South Carolina. I had retired from Shadow Crew. I was actually grocery shopping one day, went by the magazine aisle, saw Forbes, saw the story. I was like, oh, shit, that's great. Went back, signed on to Shadow Crew. And the initial reaction from everyone, it was a, it was a reaction of, yes followed by, almost immediately followed by, oh shit, this ain't good. And it wasn't. We made the front cover of Forbes August of 2004, October 26th of 2004, United States Secret Service swoops in, starts arresting people. So it was understood that this was not going to be a positive thing at the end of the day. And my reaction was basically, an, basically, yay, oh shit, was my reaction. Number nine, how did you start working for the FBI? I'm not sure if the if the person asking the question means how did I start working as an informant for the Secret Service initially or for the FBI. The Secret Service, I got arrested. They came in a week later and they offered me a job and I took it. All right. I I didn't like taking it, but I my my goal at that point in time was to get back with my fiance and I would have done anything to do that. Uh, of course, I ended up ripping off and screwing over the Secret Service for the next 10 months until I found out about it. Uh, for the FBI, once I once I actually was able to turn my life around, the way I got involved with the FBI, I was at an academic conference in Las Vegas. I uh, There was this FBI agent there, and we became friends. And I mean friends. We became friends. Um, about a year later, I met him again, just in passing. And I was like, hey, you know, I would like to be able to... Uh, to do something to to help, not hurt, and uh, from there, a relationship was uh, was established. 
Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are 37,000 field agents, only about 200 of them concentrate on cybercrime. So my insight, my understanding of the dynamics, the way things operate, and uh, just that that view and knowledge that I have has been very helpful to the FBI. I speak at Quantico, um, lend assistance and knowledge where I have it, help uh, help identify some targets sometimes things like that. I am by no stretch of the imagination an FBI agent. It's not my job to arrest people. I, that's not what I do, but I'm I'm happy and I'm proud to be able to assist whenever and wherever I possibly can. Okay. So that's, uh, that's how the relationship got established there. Number 10, with the recent shift to the online world backed by the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen a rise in account takeover and account person impersonation. And it goes without saying that cyber criminals are constantly adapting to new security measures. How do they stay ahead of these security measures? What resources do they utilize to do so? So it's really kind of interesting. You know, when I was committing crime, it was about reading white papers. It was about reading indictments, reading news stories, doing research on websites. So the terms of service, relying on the criminal network, the structure of cyber, those cybercrime environments itself to get information as well. It's really no different today. Criminals today, they read white papers. They they read the indictments. I was very big about reading the indictments to see what types of crimes were actually able to be committed, and then seeing how these individuals had been caught to try to avoid that. So it's about reading indictments, paying attention to news stories. For example, uh, Frank McKenna put out a story the other day about uh, textbook fraud. So Amazon, you can go and, and rent college textbooks. This guy was doing that. He would rent the college textbooks, and then he would sell them instead of returning the damn thing. He would sell them to bookstores or to people who were needing college texts. And he ended up making over a three-year period $3 million on this fraud. So I pay attention to shit like that because that's a technique that works. Then you read the indictment to find out how the guy was caught and you fix that and you've got a crime that's very successful. So you'd read indictments, read news stories, read blogs. You'd go to your criminal environments read what people were experiencing, the types of tools and targets that they were hitting, how they were hitting them, things like that. Once you once you become ingrained in that and you're getting that type of education, then you start to let your mind wander. You know, what what can we find out? Where can we apply this elsewhere? You know, uh, what techniques are working here that might work over there? How can we re refine or innovate on this existing type of crime to be more successful or be able to target other institutions or individuals, things like that? That is typically the way that cybercrime environments work. New security measures. What you find out is, I got to be honest with you, there's not really any new security. I've not seen any new security in place in quite some time, it's, it seems like most of these, um, most of these security companies basically have the the exact same types of tools that they've been using. Now there are a few people out there. Uh, Francis Zelazny has a non-bit, which is an innovative way of of securing identity, and I really like what she's doing over there. Um, the company that I am chief criminal officer for, Arcos Labs, they have innovated on the captchas. That's very good about defeating bots that are out there. They're very good. But, you know, as far as most security companies, they're basically just rehashing the exact same product just under another 
name. And because security is based on a capitalistic society or capitalistic economy, because of that, security is based on profit. Hmm. Which means that, you know, a lot of the a lot of the time you're not really stopping all the fraud. Well, you're never going to be able to stop all the fraud anyway. But um, what I've seen is that there's not really a whole lot of innovation going on on security as far as getting past the security services. Again, you've got a set of human beings that working together, a few hundred thousand of these people working together, sharing and exchanging information can defeat really any machine learning, any type of AI system that's out there. And it becomes very successful, very profitable. Uh, that collaboration is the big thing when it comes to uh, cybercrime being successful. Okay. Um, how do they stay ahead of the security measures? Well, you anticipate. All right. And since those security measures are not very good about innovating, and they're not, even when I, when I began my legal career, it was told to me that a lot of the times you have a security company, they come up with a new product or service. It's very popular. You have a lot of people sign on to it. And they never innovate on that at all. They never change anything about it. So that security system that starts out as new and dandy and spiffy, over time, it's useless and it's very easy for criminals to bypass. And because customers are already signed on with that security service, they tend not to change that security service either. So it's very, it becomes easier and easier over time for criminals to come in and victimize or take advantage of that specific type of security tool. So that's my opinion on that. Uh, number 11, last question. What are some recommendations that you would provide to an entity in order to fend off account takeover attacks, more particularly in the online and digital banking payment service space? I've spoken before, and this is for individuals and organizations. I've spoken before how criminals have a toolbox, and in the toolbox, they have a variety of tools with which to victimize or attack you. It's important as a defender that you have that variety of tools as well. You know, for an individual, it's freezing credit, monitoring accounts, placing alerts, password manager, multi-factor authentication, blah, 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 across the way. For, for companies, the toolbox is some of those same tools are there, but you have some different tools as well. A tool is collaboration. Are you talking and sharing information when and where you can if you're not, that's an important tool that the criminals use every single day that is very successful against you. You need to be able to share and exchange information where you can legally with your competitors, with people in your vertical. You have to be able to do that. If you if you can't, that's a problem. It's a tool that needs to be used. Uh, Multi-factor needs to be absolutely implemented across the board. Education from the ground up, you know, the person who sweeps the floor to the person who signs the checks, you need to be constantly educating your employees, but also your customers. You need to be uh, aware that friction matters. And when I say friction, it's the customer experience. It, are there things that disrupt that customer experience? The idea is to cause friction to the criminals, but not to the legitimate users of the website. So you need to be placing friction in place that identifies the criminals, uh, that makes things harder for them. You need to be educating the consumers as well while you're doing that. Um, pay attention to the biometrics. So the device biometrics also pay attention to the uh, the IP ranges that are coming in, the velocity of the accounts. The uh, You need to be looking at the complete data set of that session 
and comparing it to the data of the the non-legitimate users that are in there as as there's something that has changed because typically what will happen is a criminal will get an account take over an account the smarter criminals will simply sit there and wait until they're recognized as legitimate within that system their device is white flagged in some way um so you need to be aware of the of looking at the complete data set the history of that account and is there something that's not normal on that account are they sending money are they engaging with somebody they have historically not has the ip changed has the device changed has the biometrics changed what's different and then you flag that you pay attention to that um so it's it's looking at it's using all these tools together in a multi-layered approach that helps to defeat the most of the attacks or the, the attempted crimes that are being committed against your platform um also it's 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 all these things together all these things together you, no one tool will solve anything so it's a variety of tools multi-layered approach that goes in and helps fix a lot of the problem so most people may not know this i mean you don't until i tell you right now but i'd actually recorded this episode that's why i'm now i've got some trouble speaking i had recorded this episode and the first recording did not record so this is my second go through here um that's the show you know i what do we say and um you know i talked about eastern kentucky and i, I just please remember you know I, things can change in an instant in an instant you could lose absolutely everything through something that is completely out of your control so please just bear those people in mind uh, be grateful for what you've got what do we say we say stay safe stay secure stay vigilant at the end of the day this is the brett johnson show just do the right damn thing i'm brett johnson i want to thank you for tuning in listening giving me the opportunity to talk today thank you so much until next time take care